Hi, I'm Kate Dearden, and you're listening to The Migration Podcast. Our guest in this episode talks about the rich field of statelessness studies, how survivors of state crime disrupt dominant discourse around legal identity, and her experience of conducting qualitative research with Rohingya in the wake of the genocide in 2017. At that time, she was set to carry out fieldwork for her PhD, but instead took a bold step back and changed her plans to enable a more ethical research process. She says, when trauma is so fresh and widespread, traditional research can sometimes do more harm than good. Welcome to this episode in which Samvita Paul interviews Natalie Brinham. Natalie, welcome to the Migration Podcast. Hi, Samavita, nice to see you. To begin with, could you just explain a little bit about statelessness? Statelessness is an area of contemporary academic study, which started out as a slightly obscure branch of refugee law. I think that's partly because determining statelessness is a very technical legal process. And so perhaps statelessness studies remained for a sort of longer period than other subsections of migration and refugee studies as quite firmly enclosed within this sort of law or legal studies prism. Um, More recently, though, perhaps in the last decade or so, we've seen that statelessness studies has started to grow into a much richer and more interdisciplinary and more critical field of study. There's lots of of new and interesting research methodologies that challenge and enrich the, the more traditional approaches. Statelessness is often associated with migration, both in the sort of popular imagination and also in international policy approaches. So there are many overlaps with migration studies. However, a lot of people affected by statelessness and precarious citizenship, the problem for them starts and often remains with the state institutions and bureaucracies in their home country. So essentially people can become socially, politically, administratively displaced without actually ever moving or migrating. And so for this reason, it's really significant and important that statelessness studies have begun begun to sort of establish itself, not only as a sub-branch of migration and refugee studies, but also as a field of study in its own right. Yeah, so it's been a bit of a sort of slow starter in some ways as a subject and contemporary critical stateless studies is is kind of ethically and intellectually indebted to other disciplines. As a field of study, it's beginning to really challenge the the power relations that are inherent in knowledge production. So in an exciting way, challenging the, the kind of Eurocentric frameworks and joining other disciplines and trying to kind of recenter and decolonize knowledge production. So you also focus on state crime and uh, you have focused on it in the context of Rohingya refugees. So could you briefly explain the association between uh, state crime and statelessness? Yeah, sure. So just to start with, you know, state crime is a branch of criminology and state crimes are different than the crimes carried out by individuals, even if that individual is, you know, part of the state apparatus. Um, They're different in nature because they're organizational crimes. 
and are carried out through these large institutions. So state economy is rather complicated by the fact that states make their own laws. And so, of course, they rarely criminalize their own acts. And added to that complication, you've also got that international law is also imperfect in labeling state crime and holding perpetrators to account. So the you know, when we look from an academic angle at, at state crime, we usually see them as acts that deviate from human rights norms. And it's this sort of concept that's been developed by professors Penny Green and Tony Ward since crimes of the state often lack an international criminal definition, they're also defined by what what is called the social audience, by which we mean um, it's left to kind of resistance movements or to civil society to um, draw attention to those crimes and to label them as crimes. So if we think of Rohingya's statelessness within, within that framework, citizenship stripping or the production of statelessness becomes a very good example of, of why state crime is complicated. Because within international law, states are given a lot of space to choose their own membership um, or, or citizens. And so they have very broad scope for developing citizenship laws, even if those laws deny membership to people who have a very deep-rooted belonging to the territory or very long-standing links to society. So that's one side of it, but also denying citizenship is connected to human rights violations and atrocity crimes, including genocide, as is the case with Rohingya. So the state apparatus can work not only through laws, but also through these sort of informal processes or through bureaucratic violence. So yeah, in the case of the Rohingya, it's the Rohingya resistance movement that has really drawn attention in the first place to um, that crime of, of the state. So you have been working on the Rohingya community for a very long time now. And what was interesting to me was the fact that you have experience of conducting fieldwork between 2017 and 18 in India, Bangladesh, Malaysia, when the genocide was taking place. So could you tell us something about your experiences of conducting fieldwork during such a situation? And did it influence your own understanding of conducting research? How did it impact you? Mm, The experience of the situation in 2017 definitely changed the way I went about my research, for sure. When I passed my PhD, for example, I told my friends and family and colleagues I didn't want to celebrate because gaining a qualification off the back of other people's suffering is something to reflect on and not something to pat yourself on the back for. So this is a sort of reflection that has been uncomfortable and, and you know, a tension within my research. Um, you know, I've, I've thought a lot about the impact of Rohingya's collective trauma um, and I'll definitely continue to be really influenced by this in all my future research approaches, whether um, I'm researching Rohingya or not. So, you know, qualitative research is an inherently invasive process. 
And when trauma is so fresh and widespread, traditional research can sometimes do more harm than good, to put it honestly. When I first visited the camps in Bangladesh within the first few months of the genocidal campaign of violence, hundreds of thousands of Rohingya had fled to Bangladesh. And at the time, internationally, there was this intense interest in the abuses and violations that had happened. And when I was there, there were many journalists, academic researchers, human rights professionals, activists, all wanting to visit the camps and interview the victim, interview the victims firsthand. So when I turned up, I was kind of, you know, asked what what human rights violations I wanted to interview about, and I was given the use of an office in a camp, and the organisation that was helping me offered to bring the witnesses and survivors to me to be interviewed. But that was pretty uncomfortable. It was like being offered a kind of menu of human rights abuses, you know, children with gunshot wounds in the morning, rape victims in the afternoon and mass killings the next day. It just kind of felt awful. So when some of the interviewees were introduced as well, I recognized them from newspaper articles, recognized their faces or their names. And I realized that people were being repeatedly interviewed about these very traumatizing experiences. And while I understood it was important for them to get their stories out to an international audience to expose what was happening, I also realized that interviewing them and, you know, was a potentially re-traumatizing people and that that was, you know, if the only gain for me was, was, you know, my personal PhD project, then that was, you know, a sort of incredibly selfish motive and it would be taking advantage of things. So, you know, I couldn't really imagine a, a less ethical way to get a qualification, quite honestly. So I decided to decline to interview anybody at that time, even though it was a, a good opportunity for me. Instead, I used that time to kind of familiarize myself with the context, build some relationships and links and kind of reflect on a more ethical, responsible way to explore the perspectives of the community. And I went back to Bangladesh camps to do that a couple of months later. And I changed my approach to research. So I moved from a sort of semi-structured interviews to a, what I felt was a less harm-focused method, which was to use unstructured interviews and discussion groups that were centered around the oral history of ID cards. I found that talking about experiences relating to ID cards enabled the research participants to have a bit more control over what they told me and what they didn't. So they didn't need to relate human rights violations or trauma or give damage sensitive descriptions if they didn't feel comfortable. And instead, through these ID cards, which are very tangible objects, they seem to find it easier to talk about group identity, um, identity destruction, relate encounters with the state in Myanmar, um, but also to talk about their own sort of small forms of resistance. So it, it was a much better way of doing things. I mean, Rohingyas have a very rich, descriptive language full of analogies and vibrancy and idioms. And, you know, as I went about the research, I realized they're also learning from one another, not just me learning from them. So I thought it was really important for their own activism as well to be supported and to hear their own analysis 
to add to that throughout my PhD and beyond, actually, I made it my business as well to provide support for their own projects and, and their own writing and their own activism. So, you know, I kept working with people to enable that to happen. And I guess on reflection, research is never a process that just comes to a conclusion. It's always a kind of ongoing relationship and a, a collaboration and a dialogue. Could you explain very briefly why is it important for us to know about the ID card and the discrepancies that sort of arose from that? Mm, yeah, so, the, you know, sometimes we think of genocide as, as a sort of kind of these discrete events of mass violence and killing. And actually, if we see genocide in a different way, it's also a sociological process in which people are othered and there's all sorts of forms of violence. Um, for Rohingyas, the way that state identification processes have played into this genocide is very important. Um, so not only the kind of turning them from citizens into this people, but also denying their Rohingya identity. And by that, I mean a group identity of people that belong to Rakhine state in Myanmar. So throughout the independence years in Myanmar, the way in which Rohingya have been documented has changed. And by looking at their ID histories and asking them about their experiences, they can talk in quite a lot of depth about how their identity has been slowly destroyed alongside the destruction of their community. And I think a really important part of that has been um, the quiet resistance that Rohingya have put up when the identification systems or the registration systems change or record them as something that is not Rohingya, that's as something that is foreign or other. And so that's what my work really focused on. So very broadly, could you tell us other than the Rohingya community, what is the present day situation of statelessness around the world? And what holds in the future for these groups? And is there a way forward? Yeah, the Rohingya situation is just one example of how um, the state has managed to weaponize their, their position and their ID system against minority groups and globally there's two worrying trends really about citizenship and, and statelessness one of those things being the sort of there's an increased mainstreaming of very exclusionary nationalist ideology and that leads to these sort of increasingly draconian citizenship regimes and more punitive approaches to bordering and human movement. And then the other factor is the rising significance of multinational tech firms in supplying states with surveillance and bordering and identity management tools. And of course, these private entities do not fit into the human rights framework in the same way as states. Um, 
so you know the the business and human rights legal framework is not really yet robust enough and the corporations are not accountable enough to people in these countries where the new id systems are coming in to temper this increased state power um so the problems then with statelessness are doubly compounded by these two trends it means that people find themselves more at risk in some ways of citizenship deprivation but also and importantly those that lack evidence of their citizenship or their belonging can find it harder and harder to access basic services and social safety nets because everything is digitized and they can no longer use the informal strategies to survive. It's difficult to know exactly what would improve the situation. So, you know, the way in which um, the, the international approaches need to kind of enumerate and show impact for anti-statelessness work often results in international organizations and NGOs grabbing for the low hanging advocacy fruit. And that might be sort of improved birth registration or digitizing civil registration, for example. And these are very statist approaches and they often don't really tackle the real or underlying problems. And they can sometimes sort of fail to acknowledge the elephant that's in the room, the the elephant being that, that states aren't always benign they are also perpetrators that said i mean there's ways that policy gains can be made regarding statelessness and i think you know for me a good starting point is the way that big actors monitor and evaluate their work so thinking about a shifting model that's more accountable and responsive to affected people and perhaps less focused on the numbers and more focused on local knowledge and experience and on that sort of steady incremental change rather than that loaf hanging fruit when i've got my um researcher hat on i tend to think that you know these approaches to the governance of, of citizenship and statelessness need to be quite radically reimagined in ways that recenter and reprioritize the solutions put forward by um people who are actually affected by the issues you know, to prioritize them over states and their organizational priorities, essentially. Thank you. This was extremely insightful. So all the best, Dr. Brinham, for your future. And thank you so much for joining us. Dr. Natalie Brinham, also known as Alice Cowley, has worked for many years in the UK and Southeast Asia on the topics of forced migration, trafficking and statelessness in frontline service provision, as well as research and advocacy. In October of this year, Dr. Brinham will join the Migration Mobilities Research Institute at the University of Bristol as a postdoctorate fellow. If you enjoy the Migration Podcast, please consider liking and following us. Thanks for listening.